The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this, uh, today is meant to be the last uh, evening in a series of talks I've been giving on the Buddhist practice of loving-kindness. And um, the Buddha taught, did he teach Buddhism? (laughs) I don't know. In any case, um, (laughs) whatever it was that the Buddha taught, thank you. He taught it in many different ways. And... um, and sometimes when it's presented, uh, it's presented sometimes in kind of the essence or the simplest ways in which he taught. For example, in the Four Noble Truths. And there's something really beautiful about this teaching called the Four Noble Truths. It's beautiful because of its simplicity, its elegance. And because in its simplicity, it offers a very profound spiritual path without the recourse to uh, supernatural beliefs, without the recourse of things that you have to believe, you know, like tenets and articles of faith. And um, it offers uh, uh, a spiritual path, spiritual teachings that are meant to be uh, practical and, and uh, validated in your own experience, in your own life. And, uh, and it does it with great simplicity. But in that great simplicity, um, a lot of the things you have to teach are not included. And so when many people teach Buddhism, they pick and choose among the wealth of things that he had to teach and uh, often building on that simplicity. And sometimes they uh, miss things that maybe are important for the teachings of the Buddha. And one of the things that sometimes missed is the emphasis that the Buddha gave to loving kindness, what is often now in English called loving kindness. And... Um, because there's not like a lot of, not like this central document that's, you know, that describes the practice, central teaching, and this is all laid all out and said, this is, you know. Rather, it's, it's kind of uh, peppered, is that the right expression? Kind of throughout. And, uh, and if you uh, bring them all together, all these different uh, teachings, you get the impression that loving kindness practice was a really central practice that the Buddha had to teach. And it was also something that he expected that his monastics practice. It was kind of almost like the, one of the foundations of, of the monastic life. And it wasn't extra. It was foundational. And they were expected to practice it and cultivate it and work on it. Um, and in fact, um, the Buddha taught a variety of meditation practices. But uh, among the top three Practices, meditation practices that he, that he taught, as far as I can tell, my informal survey of it all, among the top three uh, was the practice of loving kindness. So that puts it pretty high up there. Now you could read some books on the, the philosophy of the uh, Buddha, teachings of the Buddha, great academic tomes, and uh, you'd be hard pressed to find any reference to loving kindness in them, um, because somehow you know. Just you know, a little passage here, a little passage there doesn't doesn't really stand out. But if you put them all together, you say, "Wow, this is really a uh, big big deal for this guy, for the Buddha." And um, 
So loving kindness is meant to be partly an attitude, a disposition or intention of goodwill, where a person has in their hearts and their minds the best wishes of others in mind. So you see someone, you know someone, and you really it's in you that you want really that person to thrive. You want that person to be happy. Maybe in the way that you would feel if you went to a baby blessing. And I don't know if baby blessings you've been to, but I've been somewhere where you know, everybody's sitting around with a baby in the middle and people will uh, say their wishes for that child. What's going to happen to that child when the child grows up? That's usually kind of a, a collective ritual of loving kindness, even though people don't think of it that. But just, just what it is. You're wishing the, per- the kid to thrive. And, um, and uh, it's a great thing to feel the re- be, be the recipient of that attitude to feel that someone cares about you and your welfare. And, and it's not just something, you know, casual, you know, just to have one thought come up, oh, it'd be good if so-and-so was happy that you were, you know. But you feel that there's kind of a constancy, a steadiness, or, you know, it's, they really mean it. And they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of like, that's what they seem to be concerned about when I'm with them. They're just concerned about my welfare. And it's, it's steady. It's really there in a solid way. And it can feel, it can when it's clean and beautiful, clean, it can feel really beautiful and also make you happy to feel that, wow, someone cares that much about me. They're concerned about my welfare. They want goodwill towards me. They want me to thrive. Some people are lucky enough to have had an experience of someone in their life who kind of had this unconditional, seemingly unconditional, a very, very big time concern for their welfare. And you could feel they were a big supporter. They're my benefactor, my supporter, a mentor, a teacher sometimes, sometimes a parent or a relative or neighbor or someone. And it feels really good. So the idea in Buddhism is uh, not to look for someone to be that person for you (laughs) and collect all these people who love you. (laughs) There was once a a researcher came to talk to me who was doing research on loving kindness meditation. I think she was putting people in MRIs or something, you know, testing their, wa- their brain waves. And she was really uh, impressed by the benefits of loving kindness, that how much people are benefiting. You see, the, you know, they had the control group and the people doing loving kindness. And the people doing loving kindness seem to get all these beneficial things happening in their brain. But then she explained how she taught loving kindness practice. And somehow, as far as I could tell, she had lost something in the translation. I don't know where she got it from. She wasn't, you know, she picked it up maybe third hand, maybe. Well, but the practice, she presented it to the, to, the, to the subjects where you sit in the room and you imagine that all these people that you know that love you are sitting all around you and they're saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> so I guess that's a pretty neat thing to do, to imagine. But, uh, but that's not what loving kindness practice is. And in fact, in Buddhism, you'd be a little bit worried about that because it kind of may like to reinforce a kind of self-centeredness. But rather, it goes the other way around, where the idea is, can you do that for others? Can you put all the people you love around you and send your love out to them, regardless of what they feel towards you? Can you send it out and be that person that radiates it out? Um, so this practice of the, the loving kindness is something in Buddhism that's done informally, 
it, meaning that you just kind of do it when you feel like it or do it when it seems appropriate or you just do it in the course of your daily life. You encounter someone and you, as you kind of think about them, you kind of try to meet them with your kindness, your friendliness, your goodwill for them. And it can be done formally. Informally is the formal meditation practice. And um, there's a meditation practice where that's all you do for however long your meditation practice is. And in fact, IMC this week is sponsoring a seven-day meditation retreat locally right here in Hidden Villa. Uh, And the people there, that's what they're doing for the week. All their meditation, they have some like, I don't know, nine meditation sessions a day maybe. And their walking meditation is more meditation. And all their meditation times, they're just there generating, cultivating this feelings, attitude, this, this intention of goodwill. So, it can be a full-time meditation practice. Imagine someone spending a week loving. Trying to love, at least. Isn't that kind of cool? When's the last time you were able to sustain love for a whole week? <laughs> without any interruptions, with the phone ringing, or the television going on, or going to work, or you know, all these different things. So, that's pretty cool that people, are, that people do this. So this is a formal meditation practice that is done. When it's done as a formal meditation practice, it's, us- it's usually done sequentially. And you start with a person for whom it's easiest with. So you start where you have the easiest feeling of goodwill, love towards. And you kind of get it going there. And once you get it going there, then you move to the person who's next easiest, or the or a category of people who are next easiest. And it's a little bit harder, so you kind of work on it some more and try to get it up to the same level as the person who was most easiest. Then you go a step down to the down <laughs> to the, to the person's people, the category of people who are you know, least easy, you know, next least easiest. And so far it goes and goes, and eventually you get to uh, the person's called the neutral person, which means that no one's really neutral, I guess, but. The person you don't really know, you don't have any really basis for, any real feelings, you know, for or against them particularly. You don't have much judgment about them. And so, you take someone who's more or less neutral and you do it for them. Then, and this is the kind of the topic for today, you do it for the people who are your enemies. Now, it says in the ancient text that if you're one of these fortunate people who doesn't have an enemy, you don't have to do this part of the practice. <laughs> but here in America, as this practice has come to the West and we've translated into English, um, the word uh, enemy has usually been uh, redone to the difficult person. So maybe you don't have an enemy, but you probably, chances are, that uh, you periodically, once in a great while, encounter a difficult person. <laughs> Sometimes it's yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you find a difficult person and, um, and uh, person from the people who are really challenged to have goodwill towards. And then you try to cultivate it there. And um, it's difficult. That's why it's a difficult person. And the value of that is that you get to look at what stands in the way of you having goodwill towards someone who is difficult. What's happening inside of you? And the idea is not to, um, 
to ignore the difficulty and try to, you know, uh, um, paper it over or pretend it's not there and kind of just make everything sweet and nice and loving. The idea to make this, this, this practice realistic, you have to take an honest look at what's going on in you. When you encounter someone who, for you, it's difficult to have kindness towards. And, um, and uh, so it could be a range of people. It could be a difficult neighbor. It could be a difficult relative. It could be a difficult co-worker. It could be a difficult politician. You know, there's a range of people. You have to find who, where it's difficult. Some people, politicians, are particularly difficult. Certain ones. <laughs> and um, so, so then to kind of explore that, what's going on, both of them to go what's inside of you, inside of you, what are the limitations you have, and what are also the beliefs that limit you, and what might be an understanding, perspective on the situation of the person that might allow you to open your heart to that person to have some basic goodwill towards. And um, so what goes on inside of us? So I've looked at myself at times when I've done this practice with difficult people. And I could, you know, probably I'll try to give you a list of some of the things, a long list of the challenges that I've noticed that I, you know, might come up. Uh, one is that the person doesn't deserve my love, my kindness, my friendliness. That person doesn't deserve it. If I offer my kindness to them, I'm rewarding them for their difficult behavior. They're getting away with it. So one of the things that helps with that, there's a few things that helps with that. One is that when you do loving kindness meditation, um, the difficult person doesn't need to know that you're doing it for them. (laughs) And that helps a lot, I think, because I know, okay, well then, and um, the other thing is, um, is um, uh, I, I, there's one, one person I know said this said it this way. Um, I really like generating a lot of loving kindness from my enemy because it drives him crazy. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's the best reason. <laughs> and um, and. Um, so anyway, so looking at that, and then the other, other reason I've seen is fear. I'm afraid to. If I do that, maybe they'll take advantage of me. If I take that, then I'll open my heart in ways that I don't want to be more vulnerable, not protected. And so I feel the fear, the protectedness. Oh no, you know, I'm confused. I'm confused in this relationship. And, and if I kind of begin having these feelings of goodwill towards this person, I just don't know what, how to be with that person. I don't know how to do it. So I better just stay closed. Sometimes it's been anger. You know, some of the anger just stands in the way and it's um, kind of simmering there or boiling there and about something that's gone on. And so I have to somehow work through my anger, work with my anger first. Um, kind of, so, so in that situation, the instructions is forget about loving kindness practice and do anger practice. And go in and kind of explore your anger, work with your anger, find a way to settle, resolve, heal the anger that you feel. So doing that, doing that. So these are some of the things. Probably there's a long list of other things that might stand in the way. But uh, to look at that honestly, and then in looking at it honestly, then decide what's the useful thing to do. And again, the last thing you want to do is pretend that uh, those difficulties that you have are not there and, and paper it over. You want to kind of, because then your, your, your kindness is maybe going to be kind of superficial.
there's a story that's uh, very popular in the circles I teach in. Probably many of you heard it. Of Gurdjieff. Um, had a, a spiritual community outside of Paris in maybe the 1920s. And, um, and um, Gurdjieff was a French, uh, Russian who had studied um, mostly Sufism, I think, with a lot of range of, of things and came, kind of systematized it into a new kind of way and was kind of a pioneering spiritual teacher here in the West. So I had this community, I think a live-in community, where they practiced together. And he was away on some travels or away for a while. And while he was away, there was a person in the community who was really difficult for everybody else in the community. And um, irritated everyone, apparently. Just a difficult personality. You can use your imagination. Whatever that might be. And uh, it was frustrating for everyone to live together with this person. And so... When Gurdjieff was gone, this guy said, enough, this is too difficult for me. The difficult person said, this is enough, you know, no one likes me, I don't get along with anybody, I feel all these vibes, you know, I don't know what, but you know, I'm out of here. And when Gurdjieff came back, he said, well, where is so-and-so? And then, oh, he left, finally, I was so glad. <laughs> and, um, and he said, what? <laughs> so he went somewhere to Paris and found him and asked him to come back. And as I remember the story, I hope I have it right, uh, the guy didn't want to come back, so Gurdjieff paid him to come back. <laughs> and uh, when he brought the guy back, the community said, what, did you, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, you, you need this person here because you need to uh, deal with the, what's going on inside of you in relationship to him. He's your teacher. So isn't that a nice story? And then you have uh, a teaching that I've heard mostly coming from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that um, uh, the people who you have the most difficulty with are your best teachers. So that kind of changes the perspective on the relationship and what's going on. They're my teachers? What? This person who just kind of yelled at me is my teacher? What? It, so that, Well, it's only your teacher if you ask the sincere and honest question, what do I have to learn from this? It doesn't justify their behavior at all. But, given that they behave that way, what do we learn about ourselves? And there's a range of things we might learn. It might, might, sometimes it might be, there's something about us, innocent us, <laughs> about the way we carry ourselves in the world that might have encouraged or a certain kind of inappropriate behavior from others. Occasionally that happens. Or it might be that we need to learn patience. Or it might be that we need to learn um, how to be um, strong and ferocious in response, to say no to someone and protect ourselves. There's a whole range of things we might learn, but you see, oh, this is an opportunity for me, rather than seeing it, this is a drag. This is a royal drag, I shouldn't be doing, you know, it shouldn't be happening. But to say, oh, you know, this is something to learn from. What do I have to learn? So, um, So there's a f- informal and formal. Informal is a meditation practice, and it's very interesting to do this as a meditation practice where you finally get to the difficult person and you kind of linger there, you hang out there and explore all the issues until you come to the t- a, a situation where you can have a genuine feeling of goodwill and kindness to that person without, uh, that is similar to the kind of love or care 
you have for the person who's easiest for. That's the goal you're trying to get to. Uh, one way that I've done this uh, uh, sometimes for people who have been really, really difficult, uh, that uh, was kind of a way in to kind of start to kind of breaking the, my perceptions and help kind of see them, is I imagine that they were um, imprisoned in some horrible conditions. And I was happened to go by. And then, of course, I'd want to feed them. They hadn't eaten in three days. And of course, I'd want to, you know, bring them water or something. And, uh, and that kind of idea that, of course, you know, in, that, in certain circumstances, even the most horrible person, I would want to help. So that little act of imagination sometimes has broken, broken the barriers I've had to seeing them as a human being who suffers, who struggles, and, um, and who, you know, I could try to s- support in some way. Um, so once you have, once, once in this practice you have the, the, the feeling of goodwill equal to all these categories, yourself, your benefactor, your friends, the neutral person, and the difficult person, then, um, and I said it a little bit, I said it a little bit wrong, once you start done all, all five categories, or specific people in that category, then you do the practice called breaking down the barriers, where you try to, to have, there's no barrier, no, no difference between the kind of uh, love you have for each one. And so it's equal to each one. And this is a very important part of the formal practice, is to break down the barriers so it's all equal to everyone. And in fact, there's a kind of a strange uh, uh, test that the ancient texts uh, say you're supposed to ask someone who's done this practice for a long time meditation. And maybe it's not right that I tell you the test because then you'll know the answer. And when you go off and do this, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll pass the test too easily. But the test is um, that um, you are kidnapped by bandits, ruthless bandits. You, your best friend, your best benefactor, a neutral person, and um, an enemy. And the bandits say, I'm gonna, we're going to kill all of you unless you choose one of you to get killed. It could, be you, it could be yourself, it could be the benefactor, it could be your friend, it could be the neutral person, it could be the enemy. But you've got to choose. And so that's the test. <laughs> so it's kind of horrible. <laughs> but the, um, the answer, which is not very satisfying to me, so I don't necessarily stand behind it, but the, uh, but the answer is that you're supposed to be incapable of deciding who to choose. And you don't, you see, some people think, well, of course you choose yourself, right? But somehow, but you're equal to everyone else. Everyone's equal in this kind of, in this loving kindness, yourself and other, everyone. So you're incapable of choosing. So whether that, that strange test is, you know, I don't, you know, we don't have to, we can leave that aside. Exactly. But the idea of the test is to show you this idea of to develop your loving kindness so it's equal for all categories of being. The reason for to getting it to that level is so then the next step of the formal meditation practice is you then begin doing it outwards towards all beings. And you can do it more realistically to all beings if you've already done it in an honest way to difficult people. It's easy to love all of humanity in the abstract, 
it's a lot more difficult to do it in, you know, when we are with people. <laughs> and, um, and not a few meditators have developed a loving kindness on retreat. Oh, I got it made. I'm just full of love. Oh. And then they leave the retreat and they go home that night and they yell at their spouse. So watch out. <laughs> and um, so, um, so the, you know, so the idea is to develop it realistically, so that when we do it to all all beings, that it really has some basis. We can really do it to all beings. It's you know realistic in some way. And then the practice goes on from there in a very beautiful way, where it it's, it, it can sometimes stop ha- stop being directed to any particular people, any particular persons or category of people. And just it goes outwards in you know, all directions. And uh, the ancient texts talk about sending it out to the, to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north, up and down, kind of in all directions. And the idea it becomes kind of this radiance that glows and flows out of you, out in all directions, until the uh, tradition talks about it, it becomes boundless. It has no boundary. It has no, ba- ba- no bounds and no limits to the who it gets spread to. And it has seemingly no limits in how far it extends. And sometimes, you might, maybe some of you have had the experience of a mind, an awareness which is so expanded, seems really large and big. And sometimes awareness can seem you know, like the biggest thing in the universe. So expansive, so open, but so boundless. So this, this, this feeling, this sense of kindness, of loving kindness, of friendliness, of goodwill, can just kind of, just kind of feel like it's boundless. When it's that level of practice, of boundlessness, then it's usually considered to have entered into a very deep state of meditative absorption. And um, they talk about the jhanas, jhanic practice. Very deep states of meditative absorption. It's a boundless kind of quality. And that's basically all the mind is filled with. Can you imagine the mind only filled with love, kindness? It's just a phenomenal thing. It's not distracted by anything. It's just kind of there. And, um, and this in the Buddhism is called a, um, um, when, mi- when the mind is boundless like this, or the heart, it's called liberation, um, it's called liberation, the liberation of the heart, liberation of the mind through loving kindness practice. So it kind of has a very high status being called liberation. However, it's not the ultimate liberation that Buddhism teaches. And so for people who do loving kindness practice, as this kind of full way, as a deep meditation practice, at some point, the instructions to turn the attention around and look at the state of loving kindness, the state, the meditative state you're in, and just dissect it, take it apart, and uh, look at it in such penetrating insight that you can see its conditioned nature. And when you can see its conditioned nature, its volitional nature, then you can kind of, in a sense, you can kind of crack open the conditional world and fall through to what's called the unconditional. And that's you know, the ultimate uh, liberation of freedom in this tradition. So loving kindness practice is one path that can lead to full liberation. It's also a path that leads to creating a very good attitude, a very good disposition that supports the other practices of Buddhism. So even if you don't take loving kindness all the way to this deep, deep concentration level, the fact that you're developing some modicum, some moderate amount of friendliness to yourself, to your experience, to others, 
it becomes a lot easier to do mindfulness practice. It becomes a lot easier to do other practice. So it's fairly common. There's not a lot of people who develop loving kindness practice to this level of deep absorption. But there's a lot of people who do a little bit of it, who salt their, their daily practice. So some people will do you know, five or ten minutes of this before they start their regular meditation practice, just to kind of create a good attitude. So they're not resistant or in conflict with things. They're kind of basically friendly to what arises. Some people do it in other times, uh, just kind of just kind of they do throughout the day or a little bit here or there. So the formal way, um, you know, is in meditation. The informal way is in daily life. And um, there is a beautiful uh, discourse uh, where the Buddha goes to visit uh, three monks. One of them is named Anuruddha. And he asks them, uh, how are you getting along? And they say, oh, we're living together like milk in water. And this is an expression that has survived in Buddhism down to the present. It's a very popular expression in Buddhism. Living together like milk and water. And uh, when you pour milk into water, it mixes. And so it's homogenous. Everything kind of fits together harmoniously. In contrast to mixing oil and water to stay separate. So they're living together like milk and water. So the Buddha says, well, how do you do that? And they said, um, oh, uh, both privately in our own minds and publicly, you know, and, uh, we, um, we um, uh, do verbal, f- physical and mental acts of loving kindness to each other. That's how they do it by cultivating loving kindness. But the important thing here is they don't just do it through their thinking about it, but they also do it through their words and they do it through their actions. So what, what kind of actions would exhibit loving kindness? Goodwill. Helping people out, offer, you know, supporting them in various ways. I think in this ancient, you know, in this ancient text, I think it's talking about, I'm not sure, but um, you know, uh, cleaning each other's bowls or putting out the water and getting ready for, you know, being helpful in various ways. So that's nice that these monks got along. But then, um, what do we do when things are not like milk and water? When is, when is, what do we do when it's like oil, oil and water? When there's difficulty? What do we do when people are angry with us? Or worse? The Buddha said to his monks, his monastics, so maybe you, know, you don't have to take it too seriously since none of you are monastics. He said that uh, if someone, he said, it's one of these awful, another tests or awful things, right? He said, if bandits come, and this is a rhetorical, I think, I think this is a rhetorical teaching, not to be taken <laughs> literally, but to make a very important rhetorical point. The Buddha said, if bandits come along, capture you, and start cutting off your arm. If you give rise to anger, you are not following my teachings. Instead, you should try to cultivate loving kindness for those people. So that raises all kinds of issues for a lot of people. But rhetorically, it shows that even when, when things are people being difficult to you, don't give rise to anger See if you can continue to maintain the goodwill. Can you find a place of goodwill to meet them? The um, um, so people 
Um, so, and then there's another place where the Buddha said, there's a number of ways that people can talk to you. They can uh, either tell you the truth or they can lie to you. They could... Um, let's get it, get it right here. They can speak to you in a timely or untimely fashion. I can't believe he's talking to me now. They may, wish what, they may speak what is true or what is false. They may speak what is gentle or harsh. They may speak of beneficial things or harmful things. And they may speak of, uh, with a heart of loving kindness or with a heart of hate. So five categories. When someone speaks to you in any of these ways, you should practice like this. Our hearts, will not re- our hearts will remain unaffected. We will say nothing evil. We will maintain compassion for that person's well-being. We will maintain loving kindness and a mind free of hate. We shall abide suffusing the person with our mind accompanied with loving kindness. After doing so to this person, we will practice pervading the whole world with a mind accompanied with loving kindness, extensive, expanded, limitless, free from hatred and ill will. So, not just a matter of keeping equanimity when people are you know, either lying or not lying or harsh or gentle, kind, or whatever, whatever way people meet you, you're supposed to continue to find the place of loving kindness in reply, in return. So, that's, that's the teachings of the Buddha. What you do with that is your choice, but I wanted to share that with you. So, these Buddhists, then, well, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be kind all the time. You know. It sounds kind of oppressive, you know, and especially coming to IMC, you know, well, here I can't ever be angry because these Buddhists, you're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be, Buddhists are supposed to be kind, so I better put on my best face here and always be kind of kind and not grumpy and not irritated. And, and so one of the unfortunate things that happens in Buddhist communities is that sometimes people's anger or the conflicts between people sometimes gets kind of pushed under the rug and pretending they're not there because we're always trying to be good Buddhists. You know, it's not such a it's a it's not a good idea to pretend you're a good Buddhist <laughs> because if you do, you're not a good Buddhist. So uh, it's better to be grumpy and you know and be true to who you are than to pretend you're not. You know, just. But if you're grumpy, don't take it out on someone else. Just, you know, tell them, oh, warn them. <laughs> I warn my kids sometimes when I go home. If I'm, if I'm um, sometimes I go, so occasionally I get home and I'm really hungry at dinner time. And, um, and sometimes there's a certain kind of way where if I get really hungry and kind of, I don't know, my blood sugar drops or something, um, you know, I just don't want to have a kid jumping all over me, these you know, five-year-olds. So I say, you know, I warn them, you know, I tell them, you know, um, I haven't eaten. And if, you know, I'm about to get grumpy. <laughs> and that sometimes helps. So these. So anyway. So 
you're never supposed to say anything that's difficult to other people. You're never supposed to reprove them. And um, no. The Buddha said, how does a monk reprove another? How do you admonish someone? The Buddha said, by speaking at the right time, speaking what is true, speaking with gentleness, speaking about what is connected to liberation, and speaking with loving kindness. So, sometimes you have to admonish someone, but can you do it? The idea, at least in the monastic life, you're supposed to kind of check yourself out first. Don't say the first thing that comes to your mind, but rather check, check out your motivation, what's going on in you, and try to establish yourself in those five criteria. Is it timely? Is it true? Is it gentle? Is it connected with liberation? And are you speaking with loving kindness? Another place. If a monk is going to reprove another, he should consider, do I have a mind established in loving kindness without malice towards my fellow monks? If this is not the case, then he will be instructed to please establish a mind of loving kindness towards your fellow monks. In other words, if you don't have the loving kindness, establish that first. So that's terrible news because it means you have to restrain yourself. <laughs> what? I can't give a person peace of my mind? So that's no. But don't ignore the fact there's conflict. But just come back to the conflict when you're in a better place. Isn't that wise? <clears throat> Some people just kind of, some Buddhists ignore conflict. There's a phenomenon in some, among Buddhists, and it's not all Buddhists by any means, but I think Buddhism a little bit encourages this, I think, unfortunately. And that is a conflict avoidance. So you should be, 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 be sensitive, be on the lookout for that when you're around Buddhist communities, that people are sometimes a little bit conflict avoidant, and, um, and, um, and then, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to do better, but... You know, it comes from a good place, hopefully. So, um, and what do you do if you have a grudge? This is what the Buddha said about grudges. If one develops a grudge towards anyone, one should cultivate loving kindness towards the person. In this way, the grudge is overcome. If one develops a grudge towards anyone, one should cultivate compassion towards the person. In this way, the grudge is overcome. If one develops a grudge towards anyone, one should cultivate equanimity toward the person. Because so, you know, recognizing that there are grudges that people can have, but then we practice with them, we work with them. If anyone strikes you with a hand, a clod, a stick, or a knife, you should abandon any thoughts or intentions based on attachments. In such circumstances, you should, train your, you should train as follows. My mind will not be affected and I will not speak any evil. I will abide compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. So, you know, for some people, that's a kind of shocking thing to say. Maybe I mean, unacceptable teaching. What? They're hitting me? Have a knife? I'm supposed to cultivate compassion and loving kindness for that person? It can, you know, it seems to some people, it can seem very bizarre. It can seem kind of extreme. It can seem unrealistic, inhuman. All kinds of, we can have all kinds of protests. Some people around these kinds of teachings. 
But what I'd like to suggest to you is that the Buddha was offering, was teaching, was pointing to a radical transformation of heart and mind. And many times when he was giving these kinds of teachings, he was teaching to those people who had committed their life to that very radical transformation. And he might not have given these teachings to anybody who came walking up to him. Remember, he's teaching this to his monks and nuns. That's what they committed their life to, was this radical transformation. And in that context, that radical kind of purpose of a life, that's leading towards this, this beautiful, beautiful possibility of, of a very radical liberation, very radical living in the world out of compassion in a very full and complete way, that then he had these very powerful teachings. So we have an exemplar of this, for example, uh, I think we have you know, the Dalai Lama, who goes to, you know, seemingly lots of difficult people in his life. And he seemingly uh, is continually cultivating his compassion, his loving kindness to his, the difficult people that he, you know, he's struggling with. And um, I'm very fond of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And one of the things I'm fond about him is I, uh, I believe him when he said that uh, before he started his kind of spiritual journey, he was an ordinary person, just like us. Meaning that what he did, anybody can do. It takes a certain degree of motivation and effort and work. And so, um, you know, he was so, you know, I think he was an example of someone, you know, who cultivated a peaceful attitude, a nonviolent attitude, a connection to a spiritual life in a very, very radical way. So radical that as, as he got shot, he, he uh, spoke the name of the God. Remember that, because that was his practice. So, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that the Buddha here um, is one of, the, one of these teachers, and I'm glad the world has them, has these kinds of teachers, who um, is showing a very, um, is teaching at a very high level of what's possible. Speaking at the kind of the, the highest capacity of what we're all capable of doing. And someone has to teach that, no? And so he has this, and part of this radical or uh, pointing, it was very sharp or very strong pointing to a capacity we all have, is uh, pointing to the capacity of cultivating loving kindness to a, and compassion to a very high degree. It's a beautiful thing to do. I think that if you, the degree in which you do it, uh, you will be very happy and satisfied by what you cultivate and develop. And the world needs people who have more loving kindness and compassion to give. So, thank you.